0: this is the toasted sister podcast i'm andy murphy We've got Britt Reed on the show today. She's a Choctaw cook, a culinary service provider with Tulalip Health Clinic, and a member of the I Collective. In this episode, we talk about the act of cooking, the role of Choctaw women in this Native food movement, and how food helped her connect with her culture as an adoptee. Uh,
1: so to Uh, My name's Brett Reed, um, Choctaw, and I am a cook.
0: So you're just coming out of a Choctaw language class. Can you tell me about why it's important to you to learn the language?
1: Yeah, sure. When I first uh, started getting the idea of um, moving beyond just kind of doing, um, thinking about food academically, and, you know, just like cooking at home and for my family and all that, moving to the professional arena, um, I kept uh, talking with friends of mine who, have been either, like, teachers of the language, of the Choctaw language, um, or are just very passionate about it. You know, i have kept talking about over and over again how it's important for us to learn our traditional languages so that we can understand the, um, you know, get closer to understand the mind frames of our ancestors mm-hmm. and the ways they think um, and different, uh, you know, just deep cultural uh, values and thought processes there. And so I really wanted to go ahead and embrace that as I was moving into... Uh, Cooking food more seriously is in my in my learning of more traditional Choctaw foods, and uh, I had been in school for quite some time, and I kept putting it off. Um, I'm really blessed that Choctaw Nation has a wide amount of uh, resources. So they can actually put a lot of uh, resources into making sure that all the folks that are Choctaw or Choctaw descendants like myself, um, any of us, want to learn the Choctaw languages that we we can. We have the opportunity in a lot of different formats in which to learn them. Now that I'm no longer in culinary school and just working, kind of ran out of excuses. So now I'm trying to make sure that I'm staying in the class and learning the language. And um, it's just been really awesome learning more about it and uh, kind of seeing, like, subtle ways that they view the world, even just in my small vocabulary that I have. Um, I think I could speak about as well as maybe, like, a one-year-old, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> in the Choctaw language, but uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. I was really thankful too that even just in studying before this class, the Choctaw language, um, I had um, enough help in learning enough of the language to be able to do one of my menus completely in the Choctaw language in terms of the titles, so that was that was really nice.
0: Okay. All right. And you mentioned, uh, you know, taking indigenous food seriously. Um, So it seems like you're kind of new to, you know, new to the game here. How did you come to uh, really start focusing on indigenous food at Choctaw Food? Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it before in this podcast, but um, I'm an adoptee. It's actually about that. I know like four of us who are are, uh, chefs or cooks out there that are adoptees, which is kind of cool. Uh, also kind of sad so it's a high number of that. But um but anyway, it's uh learning more about the food helped me like reconnect with uh with my tribe and my people. I don't know, it was just really interesting. Um beginning to cook it like one of the first recipes I think I ever uh cooked was Tonchi Labona, which uh the Chickasala call poshofa. Mm-hmm. And it's basically uh, translates directly into the uh, means like boiled corn. It used to be cooked with game and corn, but now it's usually uh, served with some sort of like cut of pork and also hominy and corn. And it's, just, uh, it's kind of like a stew type situation, and the only ingredient now that's in it is, uh, is hoppy uh, or salt in the English language. Um, okay. but, uh, but that was kind of like my first one, and um, for me, even cooking, that one was a little bit of a leap of faith because I was used to putting in all this other stuff in it, other spices. But I really wanted to stick to it to see what it was like. And I was actually really surprised at the depth of flavor that it had. But, yeah, I would say that as one portion of my journey in reconnecting um, has definitely been, been food. And it's been really nice to be able to talk with uh, folks like Ian Thompson, um, who's uh, he's going to have a book out soon about Choctaw traditional foods he works for the, um, the Historic Preservation Department for Choctaw Nation. And our foods are kind of his passion. And actually, like, they are his passion, it's not kind of. And also uh, an elder of mine, Sandy Stroud, has been really awesome to talk to. And just, like, several different people across Choctaw Nation that are, that are really passionate about our foods.
0: Uh, and go back a little bit. Can you tell me um, about adoptees um, uh, and what kind of situation uh, that is there?
1: Yeah, so um, I think that a lot of people are generally familiar with boarding schools and residential schools. Those, like, in a nutshell, um, was something that happened where they were stealing children um, to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man, um, as General Pratt had said. And uh, a lot of kids were abused and uh, educated in a Christian and Euro-American manner to try and assimilate them. But what ended up happening was at some point um, around, I believe it was the 50s or so, the U.S. government said that it was actually cheaper for them to assimilate Native children by putting them through adoption and foster care systems and in white homes than it would be to send them off to boarding school. So it was actually a, moni- a money-saving ma- uh, enterprise for them or solution for them. And uh, after that, you begin to see a lot of uh, Native children being um, coerced from families, the government would make up any kind of excuse, things that they wouldn't tag, like other uh, ethnicities or races for, to be able to take their children out of the home. They would totally use those to take Native children. Um, you know, in our communities, it's not uncommon for kids to go over and be watched by their grandparents for hours, if not days or so. Um I feel like it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was the kind of stuff, too, where they're like, yeah, we're totally going to take the kids because that happened. Um there's even cases of them taking uh, babies out of mother's arms as they just birth them. Um, so it's pretty, pretty hearing this has been going on for quite some time. Um, eventually, there were people that did try and address it, and um, through their efforts, their activism, they created the, um, or they pushed forward to have the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 created, mm-hmm. but um, it's definitely something that continues to happen, and uh, I wish folks knew more about it, and uh, also that we would help adult adoptees reconnect Uh, because there's a lot of work I think done more on the front end trying to stop children from being removed but definitely not trying to recreate or reconnect the thousands of adopt adopted adult adoptees that are trying to come back it's like basically all on their shoulders to be Sherlock and find their original birth certificates and all that to come back home
0: you know that 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 is another reason why um, a lot of native people are not connected to their culinary uh, traditions is because of some of these old policies from a long time ago. Not just like you know back in you know war Indian war times where there was a scorched earth policy. There was a lot of uh, a lot of this kind of stuff happening, just like physically ripping uh, people away from the culture and from the food. And um, uh, do you see yourself reconnecting with the culture, like through the food as an adoptee? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one
1: aspect of it. Um, I also do a lot of beadwork. Um, I was really thankful to be able to learn how to do beadwork. I actually learned from uh, some friends that were Oglala. And then later was like, I need to be able to make my own Choctaw beadwork. Mm. And so it was really nice to be able to talk with um, some women from across Oklahoma and um, Mississippi to kind of learn up how to do that, even though it's, like, at a distance. Um, but food definitely has been part of that. It's been, like I said, it's been pretty instrumental in, in uh, reconnecting back in terms of, like, relationships with people and just learning more of the history. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think one of my favorite memories uh, initially was uh, up here. And I live in Washington. I live on the Tulalip Reservation. Um and uh, right now, I think it's like seventy percent of all uh, Choctaw Nation members live outside of the 10 and a half counties of Choctaw Nation up here in Washington. In two thousand and ten, I think it was, they uh, said so they had at least two thousand members of the Choctaw Nation. That's not counting um, Mississippi Band Choctaw or Jenna Band or descendants. And uh, and so we've kind of like gathered together since two thousand mm-hmm. and twelve. Uh, and my friend and I sat in this kitchen envisioning like. Uh, what we would love to see happen um, in terms of uh, building a community of Choctaw people up here. And, uh, I mean, I think a large portion of that conversation and conversations of ours uh, after that, besides trying to play stickball and social dancing and things like that, was being able to come together and cook together and eat uh, traditional foods.
0: All right. And before I ask you about um, traditional Choctaw foods, um, you're talking about Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, Choctaw are not originally from there. You know they, they were forced from there. Um, uh, tell me about how that forced removal kind of uh, affected traditional Choctaw foods.
1: Yeah, I mean, starting before even the removal, mm-hmm. um, you start to see changes in the food happening as people came over from Europe. So, for example, Hernando de Soto brought uh, these pigs as he was coming through the southeast, and uh, attempting to conquer different areas like Mobile, Alabama, or what became Mobile, Alabama. And uh, these these pigs ended up kind of running loose and became wild and turned into boar. When we had enough food source, you know, that was kind of something that we didn't see as uh, something you really want to eat. and mm-hmm. you know, we kind of turn our nose up to that, like, what the heck is that? Um, and so that was something that we ignored for a long time. Um, we usually ate a lot of... Um, of course, like agricultural things like corn, beans, and squash, um, sunflower, and the things that we gather like persimmons um, that grow wild and may pop and um, nettle and uh, just a whole bunch of stuff um, in addition to the things that the men hunted, like deer and rabbits and squirrel and things like that. But we kind of got into, the, into an alliance uh, that was also a trading alliance with the French, and, of course, they were really into fur trade. Um, and unfortunately, through a lot of coercion, from the US government um, and the world market that was kind of encroaching on our lands. Um, there was a lot of people that were hunting to try and make enough money for trade goods and things like that. And uh, unfortunately, the entire population of our deer in our territory got completely hunted out. Um, and, uh, and so that's when we began kind of transitioning over into like European kind of crops and, or like, not as much crops, but definitely the, the animals like pork of the wars and things that kind of happened, it was uh, the women's job to be able to take care of the field. That was our responsibility. Um, And uh, we kind of got to decide who was and wasn't able to, that we had um, a responsibility for that, even in a kind of like diplomatic kind of way. Unfortunately, with the wars that were going on with the different tribes attacking us and uh, the Americans and all that kind of stuff, um, we weren't really safe in the fields anymore. Um, And so a lot of people kind of abandoned growing our crops, unfortunately. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the, the decline of some of our traditional foods in that kind of way um, back in Mississippi. But whenever the Trail of Tears happened, uh, thankfully there was people that definitely did take some of the seeds and the crops that we were growing, like the squash and the corn and the beans, and uh, they did take them over to Oklahoma. And so those were things that at least definitely in the eastern portion of the state or Indian, tori- Indian territory at the time. Um, that they would they would be able to grow. But yeah, the diet's definitely definitely changed. I think now whenever you look at Choctaw recipes there's definitely a lot more salt and sugar and lard. Um, definitely things like uh um baking soda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and things that you and I don't know, for me at least I'm like I don't know what that baking soda needs to be in Banaha bread. It's <laughs> not really leavening it, but that's just me. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um But yeah, you see a lot more influence of of those ingredients now, in a couple of recipes that um, are often, you know, kind of pushed out there whenever they're when people ask like, what are Choctaw foods?
0: Do you know what sort of methods people use to uh, carry seeds over to Oklahoma?
1: Uh, I wish I did actually. That's definitely something that I'm I'm definitely wanting to learn more about. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that that's definitely a question I need to ask. my my elder sandy <laughs> yeah. we actually um have been really thankful and blessed to be able to to go and cook um on this project that I had, um, called Yapoli. It's a project that my friend Karina and sandy and uh, some other awesome ladies started um uh, between the University of Washington and uh Choctaw Nation. Mm-hmm. It's essentially using our culture to address diabetes and hypertension and a lot of other chronic diseases and risk factors that we have present in our population, uh, particularly in Oklahoma. And uh, the second portion of it, we actually go and rewalk the Trail of Tears, and they did amazing work uh, to to figure out, like, what were the actual trails, not, like, kind of, like, around the area, but the trails themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So the last, I think it's been well over four years now, every May, they go and they rewalk the Trail of Tears with uh, a group of women and kind of focus on, like, considering what had happened and how genocidal the Trail of Tears was, Mm -hmm. um, what was the vision that our ancestors had for walking that trail for us and what is our responsibility in addressing our own health to honor that and kind of looking at the ways that our ancestors want us to be um, and what kind of ancestor we want to be. And additionally, like, if we address the different things that, um, like, health-wise, Going on with us, um, how like what do we want our descendants to be in terms of ancestors? so yeah, it's definitely a, a great opportunity for me to to go back and ask them uh, what the methods were for for getting those seeds over and definitely preserving the foods and the knowledge, um, particularly when you know like everything was kind of seeming like it was falling apart. Mm.
0: Uh, Oh, you mentioned um, health, you know, the health of uh, the community, and that's, um, uh, of course, something that you focus on. uh, And and you focus on teaching uh, people how to cook, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing now.
0: Okay. How does cooking cooking knowledge affect health?
1: I mean, I think it has a tremendous impact on health. And I don't think just physical, but I think uh, definitely, like, mental, emotionally, and spiritually as well. I mean, like, I think what got me initially started down this path myself was the fact that, you know, like, um, you know, was being adopted out, um, I was very lucky to have uh, really supportive parents that were uh, really amazing. Um, and one of the things that they always made sure to do was to cook at home. Um, and these were two people that were definitely still working full-time jobs and often commuting from Dallas that took, like, you know, an hour or more to get home. Uh, but even still they were putting a, um, you know, a home-cooked meal on the table every night and insisting that my brother and I had to sit at the table, even though we definitely wanted to go watch Nickelodeon instead. And so that's what kind of got me started down this path. And, and so, I mean, that definitely showed me how food itself can strengthen relationships, which definitely, I think, you know, kind of addresses a portion of that heart, mind, body, and spirit. Uh, but, uh, I mean, in terms of cooking, I mean, there's just so many things that are in processed food these days, like you really don't know what's, what's in them. I, I, I work here at the Tulalip for so the um, Tulalip Health Clinic Diabetes Program. You know, I think there's a lot of historical trauma attached to food, like definitely, like, stories of um, the lengths in which people had to really go, even here on this reservation, to make sure that they, they kept their families fed, you know, and were surviving. And so, uh, you know, like I came in, I was all guns blazing, being like, we're going to teach everyone how to do traditional food. It's going to be awesome. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, kind of got to like, whoa, 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 we've got to like roll back here, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so it's been, it's been really awesome working with the community. Like, uh, we've got a garden in the back of the health clinic that our diabetes program runs, and Ronnie Leahy does an incredible job uh, running that along with uh, one of my elders and uh, some other coworkers. And uh, being able to work with the vegetables, we had a couple of, um, of opportunities to cook with the vegetables directly from the, the garden. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, you see the community come in, particularly on those garden days, um, where they go out there gar- like gardening and gathering the vegetables, being able to experience them not just something that you know they see on a can, but like, you know something that 's fresh and coming straight off the vine in some cases if it 's peas or tomatoes or something like that, or something that they they 've dug up um, and now they get to experience it sometimes like it might be even for like the first time for some people like what it actually tastes like um, you know like actually in like a meal.
0: Um, oh, oh, I wanted to ask you, what was the challenge of uh, going all gung-ho with the uh, traditional foods?
1: I don't know, like, I don't know. It's a little idealist, I would say. Uh, it hurts my heart to say that. But I think right now, uh, for a person to eat completely, to like or pre-colonial, rather, and traditionally, I mean, that's got to be someone that's really dedicated. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of Carlos Baca in particular. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of a person who's really dedicated that I kind of like to L And, I mean, that's a... That's the guy who's, like, going up into the mountains several times a week for hours, walking miles and miles, hiking miles and miles right. um, to go and gather things. And uh, I don't think a lot of people just have, like, that dedication. I don't have that dedication to do that mm-hmm. all the time for my life. Um, I feel like I'm, if I can get a good, healthy meal that uh, my family likes onto the table, then that's, that's definitely, like, a win. Unfortunately, like, not a lot of – are there as much opportunity to go out possibly for some places? for people to go out and gather, um, or perhaps maybe people just don't have the resources to, mm-hmm. uh, depending on where they live. Uh, so that's definitely a barrier, but there's, I think there's a lot of barriers to being able to, to eat traditionally. I think for myself it would definitely be ideal if, uh, you know, if I could just like, roll up to a spot and be able to buy all of the traditional foods that I want Mm-hmm. But I think right now it's just not a reality. Even though uh, you know Dan Cornelius and all them do do a good job in trying to to make different products available from different uh, reservations and and tribes and folks that are making that kind of stuff. But
0: yeah, I mean it's cool to see people um, starting to like maybe maybe take a step back and say, hey, you know the average Joe Indian is not going to be doing this because you know Joe Indian has a full time job and maybe another job on the side and then the kids to take care of you can't you know, sometimes don't even have time to do a garden or forage, or even have the knowledge yeah. um, to do that because you have to actively like go out. If you're not like born into it, you have to act actively go out and seek that kind of knowledge and take classes and find an elder. Or it's it's dedication. <laughs> it takes a lot of work um, to to really eat like that pre-colonial. Uh, foods, and I'm really happy to see that people are starting to have the conversation of, uh, you know, packaging some of this, uh, some of these ingredients, and um, uh, even like sharing, you know, uh, getting a hold of some ingredients uh, from a different nation, like. You know, cookie wild rice in the Navajo Nation, or um, you know, acorn flour for you know whatever, um, where it's where it's not really like a native ingredient. Do you think we need to have more conversations that include average people?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, and I mean, I, I think that, and again, like I said, like I came in guns a blazing, not considering the fact that you it's been like 500 years of consistent assault on our ability to be able to eat not only traditional foods but healthy foods. And so it's going to take some time to be able to to possibly get some folks to be even open to trying, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like some traditional foods. I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's definitely not what I want to hear, but I mean like a quote that comes out of, uh, you know, a company up here in the Northwest, uh, when my friend Karina was trying to do some work up here, was that people were like, I don't want to eat a fern.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, like if you, if we can't, if it's a struggle for people to um, to be open to, say, like broccoli, I feel like I get that example often. Mm-hmm. But if it's a struggle for them to be open to broccoli, like, um, you know, then it's definitely going to be some work to get them to want to eat a fern. But I think that, that definitely talking with people about foods and where they're personally at Finding out like why they like certain foods, um, why they may not like certain foods, um, and then trying to introduce them to similar foods and cooking them in a way or teaching them how to cook them in a way that maybe they'll find more enjoyable is definitely a win. Um, but I think we still have a long, a long road to go. But I still I'm definitely hopeful, um, and I think that the way that the movement's going is it's only up from here. I would say. But having conversations with people that may not be, you know, within the arena of food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Um, and really excited about that, I think it's definitely important because I know definitely for myself, like, I can talk with the people that I know about food sovereignty all day and, you know, get really excited about it and then be like, everyone should love this. But, you know, when you come back to the reservation or you come back to whatever your community is and you try and have those conversations with people that may not be into it, that are just trying to live their everyday lives, it's it's definitely not going to go the same way that it would be if you're talking within your, your food sovereignty group or peer
0: group yeah yeah I mean when when I see uh, these intricate and beautiful dishes that um, you know all these native chefs are cooking and when I'm when I'm thinking about you know back at home when people are just uh, having to having t- 20 minutes to cook right after work and cook for the whole entire family
1: yeah and I mean yeah. I think like some of my favorite Memories from uh, from New York when we were there at the Eye Collective.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But I remember um, we had done all these fancy platings and everyone standing around and it was really cute because Twila was there, just so proud. Oh, she and everyone. Um, but I remember at a point in which Carlos had served the corn mush. He like just like took a huge scoop of it, um, you know, compared to like the other quantities. but he took a, a scoop of it, plopped it down on a plate. And then he just, like, set it there, and we were all staring at it. And he was like, at this is the way we eat at home. Like, we're not going to make it, fan- like, fancy at all. Just put it on there, and that's the way they're going to eat it. They're going to eat it the same way that we would back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that was definitely something that reoccurred uh, time and time again. Because, I mean, at the time that we were doing that, I was still in culinary school. Uh, I was still used to the pressure of, like, really trying to live up to these high expectations, you know, and everyone's all starry-eyed and think of, michelin stars in that environment but i mean even like in the the night after that whenever uh hello and uh hello brian and Neptali and marco uh marcus did their dinner natali did a similar thing with the tacos he's like don't make it fancy this is the way we eat it put so on there <laughs> they're gonna get it the same way we do mm-hmm. um yeah, and it's just more more examples of that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, so I, I think that, like, even though, you know, these, like, fine dining um, methods of cooking and, and presenting the food are, I think they have their time in place, uh, but I, I don't think that, you know, that there's the expectation that folks back home are going to eat that way. Um, you know, I, I go back and forth about, in particular, like, the prices of those meals because they're not accessible to our community. Um, I couldn't actually even even afford the price of those meals. But, uh, you know, it definitely opens up a door for, like, I I call it gastro-diplomacy. I also have my my background in um, my master's in public administration, so maybe that's why I go to that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know, I guess it's our our chance to talk to a group of people that otherwise wouldn't care or wouldn't listen. You know, I definitely think when we go back to our communities, trying to figure out ways to to make it accessible to our people where they might be like, okay, I might try that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just going back, I think any time that we could get folks to to try something outside of their comfort level, whether that's a healthy food or a traditional food, that's definitely a win uh you know it's just baby steps you know uh mm-hmm. to to you know, get back to to eating the way that we should be
0: uh you mentioned the role of Choctaw women um and definitely that's uh, changed, but what is the role of Choctaw uh women right now and and the role in this uh food? Movement. I mean, I would
1: say that we've been a matriarchal society, um, and even though there's been definite hard outside pressure for us to change, I think when you look in the homes, you still see like a pretty, pretty matriarchal, um, matriarchal kind of structure. Um, I feel like it's a little. with Me living in in Washington, it's kind of hard to comment on exactly what's going on in Oklahoma. Since I only visited a couple, couple times a year at most, mm-hmm. but. I would say definitely here in Washington, there's, I've been very thankful to be a part of a lot of changes that have been happening in terms of revitalization and the passion that the women in particular have to bring back some of the old things um, and old ways that we have. I remember being told a story that, um, not story really, but when they were doing Yopoly, they were all worried because of course they were asking different people to be a part of it, and. Uh, And they just got women that had come forward and they were all worried, you know, because they wanted to have men come forward too. And they talked to the elders and uh, they said, don't you know, whenever things needed to be restored, it was the women and the women's ceremonies that took care of the restoration process. And so, I mean, I think that um, with the different things that are happening, uh, I think it's really interesting and awesome to see many Choctaw women stepping forward from all age groups. Um, and doing quite amazing things to to revitalize different areas of our culture.
0: That was Britt Breed Chalk Chaw Cook. You can follow her on Instagram. I'm Mandy Murphy, host, producer, and creator of the Toasted Sister Podcast. And this podcast is supported by the Kawanik Broadcast Corporation. And music was created for Toasted Sister by CW Check out more of this duo's fantastic blues music by visiting cwion.com. That's com. You can also follow this great band on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you so much for listening. When I started this podcast last year, I wanted it to be a resource where people could go to learn about Native food from Native people who are actually involved in Native food ways. And I think it's turning out to be just that. Please keep listening and sharing these episodes so more people can learn about the beauty and importance of indigenous food. And if you want to support the work I do here, please head on over to toasted sister podcast.com and visit the donate slash buy button. And there you can donate any amount or purchase a cool toasted sister podcast coffee cup. Your contributions help keep this podcast going. Once again, thank you and we'll see you next time.